This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Ska Boom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Ska Boom, an American ska and reggae oral history. The goal of this podcast is to talk about ska with an emphasis on American ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and influence a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. Ska Boom podcast features a mix of stories on the history of bands, songs and musicians, interviews with a who's who of ska and reggae, and standalone audio documentaries about a variety of topics. I'm excited to announce that the Ska Boom podcast is now part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is the MTV of podcasting, featuring a wide range of music shows focused on history, interviews, commentary, news, careers, industry, reviews, conversations, books, films, comedy, and more. The network of 70 shows is hosted by producers, radio DJs, musicians, fans, comedians, actors, authors, and celebrities. In this episode of the Skaboom Podcast, I'm interviewing Jason Nugent, aka Agent J, guitarist for the Slackers. Now in their 30th year as a band, the Slackers perform their own distinct amalgam of early Jamaican music mixed with classic 50s and 60s American styles. There are influences from 50s and 60s rock and roll, rhythm and blues, jazz, and Latin music. Singer Vic Ruggiero has coined the term Jamaican rock and roll to describe their sound, saying the band might play a classic Jamaican style, but the vocals are distinctly American East Coast, revealing the obvious connection of Jamaican music to the doo-wop of Harlem and the Bronx. Nugent has been a member of the band for the last 15 years, but has been a longtime fixture of the New York City ska community, helping to start New York City third wave ska band Agent 99, before going on to perform with Stubborn All-Stars, Victor Rice, and Virgin City Rockers. Nugent has also diligently released music under the Crazy Baldhead moniker and has produced a who's who of American ska bands. I speak to Nugent about how he was introduced to ska and reggae, his guitar and guitar influences, as well as a discussion about his time in Agent 99 and how he ended up joining the Slackers, and then we discuss his work as a producer. Have a listen. Jason Nugent, welcome to the Ska Boom Podcast. What's happening? How you doing, Mark? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for uh, taking time to speak with me. I know you just got back from tour, right? So how was it being back out on the road in the age of COVID? Um, I mean, it's just great to get out and do it. This is, we've been playing, um, really since the beginning of May and even done a couple of little short runs of a few dates, but this was the first real tour of like a couple of weeks and, um, great. I mean, you know, it's weird. Uh, 
you know, they have protocols at doors. A lot of clubs are coming around and checking your vaccine stuff. Uh, you know, going into Canada, we obviously had to prove we were vaccinated, but also have uh, a uh, one of the not the rapid test, but the better test we had to get done within 72 hours, no less, no more than 72 hours before, uh, before crossing the border. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot there's more hoops to jump through. Um, you know, we wear masks walking through the crowd. Some of the gigs, we wore them on stage because we sensed, you know, there was a little more resistance to it. So we wanted to, like, you know, set a good example by, you know, if we can do it while we're playing, um, then the audience can do it. But almost everywhere, people were really cool. Um, and really everywhere, people were cool. Only one or two places, there was just one or two people that were, you know, a little resistant. Um, but people are out again. People are hanging out. Uh it was really good. We had some packed out shows, you know? I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I think, you know, this is the way back towards normal, although I don't think it'll ever be the way it was. Um, it's, it is good that people are coming out to, uh, to hear and see live music. So I'm really happy to hear that. Um, so this is a question I ask everybody that I interview on this podcast, Jay, do you remember your ska lightning bolt moment? And if you do, what was it? Huh, um, I remember one of them, and I'll get to that. But like ska took me a minute. I really got into ska through reggae. And um, when I was a kid, I don't know, like 10 years old or so, um, who was it? Musical Youth had a tune, Pass the Duchy, which was a version of Pass the Coochie. This generation rules the nation. And that I heard instantly. That was 81, 82, something like that. And I loved that. And just the whole vibe of it. And I was like, what, what is this music, man? This is like amazing. And there, there were other moments throughout the 80s where I'd hear reggae. And even though I grew up in Queens, I didn't live in a West Indian neighborhood, which there definitely are some. Um, so I didn't have a lot of exposure to it. And then toward my end of high school years, maybe around 16, when I was 16, 17 or so, late 80s, um, you know, like almost everybody, like Bob Marley's legend was the gateway. And then other people started telling me about Ska. A friend told me about Fishbone and couldn't really explain what the music was, but they, it was somehow related to punk, which I was into. And I was like, oh, I'll check this out. And then when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like this is definitely has this kind of Caribbean thing going on, which I, I couldn't really put my finger on. And then, uh, you know, I got into Agent 99 and, you know, I basically tried to just copy what I heard Fishbone doing. And but I still wasn't really that like in love with ska. You know, it was, I was still wanted to be into reggae. And then I heard Rocksteady around that time in the early 90s. And I love that stuff. Um, but to me, like a lot of the ska, especially like the older stuff, the instrumentals sounded a little like elevator music. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. I couldn't really get it. Some of the Scatolite stuff, like the minor key instrumentals, I liked. Um, but really the moment that I started to get it was... I remember touring with the specials in 1999. We were with uh, Stubborn All-Stars opening for them. And there have been other moments actually playing in Stubborn All-Stars, hearing that music and playing it, just the simple on-off rhythm of ska 
was something I really, you know, kind of latched onto as like this kind of uh, just repetitious, um, you know, almost like a, a meditation thing, which I really liked. Uh, but at one time, yeah, it was, it was in Atlanta. We were opening for the specials and I remember standing stage side behind the stage watching them play. And I think they were playing nightclub. And I remember it just grabbing me and I started just banging my hands on the stage to even where I had like black and blue marks on my like hands the next day. But I, I just, it, it suddenly got me and you know, it's not like Jamaican ska, it's two tone, but the lyrics, what they were singing about, they were singing to their generation and their people. And just it, that was like pretty much the lightning bolt moment. Wow. So you had a couple lightning bolt moments, it sounds like. It's, it's, it was a slow evolution. Scott took me a minute to really, you know, get it. I, I liked reggae immediately when I heard it as a kid, but Scott definitely took me a minute. Wow. So what inspired you to pick up the guitar? My father played guitar um, when I was a little kid. He would come home from work and like his kind of, you know, wind down from work was like he would sit in my parents bedroom just by himself and like strum on the guitar and play like uh simon and garfunkel tunes and like moody blues and stuff like that and that was like his chill out moment to like unwind from the day and i would just watch him be like wow this is really cool and at some point my brother started playing and i tried to pick it up a couple times but didn't have the discipline as a kid and um really when i was 14 my my brother, you know, I'd already heard Jimi Hendrix and liked him a lot, but from the, the tunes that would be on the radio, but my brother got, um, are you experienced and started listening to that. And that blew my mind. And then I, I got, I think a copy of, uh, it was still LPs at the time. You could get cassettes, but I actually bought the record, which was pretty common, um, of smash hits. And, I just played that to death, that and Are You Experienced? I played those records to death. And that was like, yes, now I'm ready. I'm doing this, you know, even if I barely know what I'm doing. But at like 14, I was like, I'm getting a guitar. This is what I'm doing. I'm never, I'm not going to stop doing this, even if I'm not any good at it. Right, right. Yeah, I think at at, at that age, I was around the same age when I picked up the bass and I I had no idea what I was doing, but I had um, a determination that this was something I wanted to do. So it was almost through, like through force of will. Yeah. Um, was that similar for you with the guitar? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I would just, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm born in the early 70s. So I mostly grew up in the 80s. So, you know, we grew up on like classic rock. We grew up on, on Led Zeppelin and those are the records my dad had. So, you know, I'd be there playing like, you know, uh, whole lot of love and, you know, like Black Sabbath, Paranoid, like all the things in a record, uh, in a music store, you're not allowed to play. <laughs> so it was all that, you know, all that riff kind of stuff. And then I discovered the Ramones when I was 16, a friend brought me to a show. They were playing in a high school near me, um, a high school gymnasium in Queens, which totally blew my mind. So then I started like- How, how appropriate. What a great place to see the Ramones for the first time. Oh man, show changed my life. Yeah. So just stuck to it. I just was like, you know, I'm into this kind of stuff and I'll just do it. And, and luckily a friend, really a, a friend introduced me to Dania from, you know, who, who was a backup singer in the Slackers in the early days. And she left and was starting her own band. And 
a friend introduced me to her, you know, and told her, Hey, I know this guy that plays guitar. And so she just, I happened to be the first guy she asked, you know, she's like, Oh, do you, can you play Scott? And I, having heard Fishbone, I, I, I'm just like, I faked it. I, you know, I kind of lied on my first job interview and was just like, yeah, you know, I was just like, I, I think I can do, I hear what the guy's doing. I could do that. And um, luckily, Dania, you know, allowed me in her band. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about Agent 99 um, because I I think it's a band that doesn't really get a lot of attention, but it's it's one that I think if if things had gone a little bit differently for you guys and maybe if you had stuck it out, you might mm-hmm. have been one of the you know the third wave ska bands from New York. It's I mean, one of those you know uh, things you wish you could do over and you wish you had the vision. You know, I think that's the difference between being younger and being older is like the vision. You know, you don't think anyone's going to be into this. You don't see the possibilities. And, you know, we changed our sound a lot throughout the short period of the band of two years. But her original vision was great. She was super influenced by Pauline Black and the selector. So we were just a four-piece guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. It was two singers at first. It was Dania and it was Gail. And Denia would play flute, so there would be some of that lead element, too. And, and yeah, looking at other bands that ha- happened just a couple years after us that went on to really big success, um, you know, we, I was definitely, like, kicking myself, like, oh, man, we should have stuck it out. But, you know, at the time, it, it was what it was. There was a good combination of things, and it, it fell apart before the band broke up. So who knows? Sure, but do you do you look back on it as as sort of preparing you for a lot of what would come later, the different projects that you would be a part of later on? Did Agent Ninety Nine sort of give you a grounding in how to be in a band? Oh, absolutely! How to, how to play yeah, guitar yeah. better, that all that kind of stuff. Um, somewhat. I mean, definitely. I don't know. We played something. I think we played something like over a hundred shows, one hundred twenty-five shows, or something in our like two-year career. Um, so it was definitely like school, you know, that was boot camp for how to be in a band and write songs and do all that. And obviously, you know, it's like, you wish you could do it better. I definitely, some of the things I wrote, I, I was like, now I'm like, even shortly after the band, I was like, what was I thinking? I should, we should have kept with that formula we had. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely that was, you know, that laid the groundwork for like how to do this. And it was also a lot of like what not to do. To me, it was a lot of things of like, oh, I, I don't want to repeat this. I want to, you know, I want to do a different thing. And then the polar opposite of that was as that band was breaking up, um, I think at uh, Vic Ruggiero's recommendation, Django uh, asked me to come join Stubborn All-Stars, which was a huge break. Um, and that was a very different thing because that was like a a big band with a horn section. And, you know, I was very much like a backup guy, which I was in agent 99 too, but it was a much bigger band with a bigger sound. And I felt like I was just one of the guys in the band. Um, right. Um, 
Going back to Agent 99 for a second, is it true that you had a head full of dreads when you met Dania for the first time? No. I um, I cut off my dreads in, I believe, April of 91, and I didn't meet Dania till 93. So I had my dreads when I was like 16, 17 years old, and I had not even a head full of dreads because I had like a mohawk. You know, so I was really into punk, but I was getting into reggae at the same time. So I had like this really wide mohawk with really, and my hair is really curly. I have like a Jufro. So I didn't, my, my hair naturally, you know, like three weeks of not combing it. It was like one big lock, which I literally had to like rip apart into like separate locks. And I remember like the, the Jamaican guys used to sell weed in Washington Square Park. When I shaved my head, they were like so disappointed in me. You know, cause I lived around there at the time and they were like, you know, scowling at me and like, what happened, man? Like, we thought you were one of us. Like, um, but yeah, that was like 91, but that did happen. I will verify that so that I won't deny that. When I was doing my research for this, I came across this, uh, that you had had a head full of dreads and I don't believe I had ever met you when you had dreads. So, but it is funny that you mentioned the Jufro because I definitely- had a Jufro as well. Yep. And um, like really thick, thick, curly hair. Yep. That if I hadn't kept short, would have probably done this. I mean, I just had, you know, these big, thick curls. Right. Um, you know, which would have been great payas if I was an orth- Orthodox yep. Jew. But um, it is funny. Yeah. I, um, you know, h- how you can actually pull that off. I guess it wasn't that hard for you, but I still, you know, in my mind, I mean, I'm not saying it looked good. I mean, it, it physically happened, but as a, like a fashion, as a look, like I wasn't like Don Letts or anything, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was a mess. You know, I was, (laughs) I was in general a mess around that time. So, but, but, but still you, you, I I give you credit for, 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 for going for it at least at at, at one point. Um, Yeah. It just seemed the next, Thing, or it was really, you know, an act of omission. You know, it was like I just stopped making any effort to comb my hair and I didn't have nice straight hair that I could spike up into a mohawk. So I was just like, well, this this is kind of a thing too. And at the time, I was only vaguely aware of like the clash, like the kind of punky reggae sound and all those things. But I suspected there was some link between the two, even though the, musically they're not similar but, you know, I, I suspected there was some kind of thing happening between punk and reggae, you know, because I was like, I love reggae and I love punk. So I'm sh- like, there's something to that, you right. know, there's some right. connection there. So I think this look can be OK. How, and how did you accessorize? I mean, what 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 else were you wearing at that time? To, to um, I had some big like 14 hole steel toe oxblood docks. Um, and at some point I got, you know, like a flight jacket. So I was like punky at first with, but like not super punky, you know, I would have just like mopey, you know, pre grunge kind of punky kid. And then I got a flight jacket and then like, you know, some skinhead guys in like DMS that I knew that I was a little kid hanging around and they were like, Hey man, if you're going to wear a flight jacket and docks, you got to, you got to shave your head. You can't have long hair, <laughs> you know? And I sort of somebody stopped me, somebody stopped me on St. Mark's who was like one of the OG guys. And like, <laughs> and he was like, he knew me and was like cool to me, but he was like, Hey man, I got to tell you this. Like you got to, if you're going to wear that, you got to do this. You can't, 
can't do both. And, you know, I, I knew to take that warning for, you know, to seriously. So, um, <laughs> you know, and I was going that direction anyway, even though I never got much into like that much into oi or anything like that. But, you know, everyone goes through their like little skinhead phase as like a teenager. So you went from, from, from dreads to shaving your head. Yeah. But I would also see, like, I remember at that time, Andre from Mephiscopheles, who I saw when I was like 17 or something, they were like maybe the second or third ska show I ever saw. And I remember that blowing my mind. It was at that place that was Beowulf, and I think it became Drom or something on Avenue A. And it was one of those things too, like, oh, you got to check out this band. And I knew it was like a punky thing and a skinhead thing, but it was it was like Jamaican music too. And I didn't really know the whole connection between those things. But I was like, okay, these are other people that are into the same thing I'm into. And I remember going to that show and it was like all skinheads. And I remember Andre, you know, having like also like, you know, uh, steel toe docks and like the whole skinhead look, but he, you know, had dreads and everything. And I was like, what's happening? Like these guys get it, you know? And like they had the Timbali player and they, they were very much, much more of like a Calypso ska band at the time. You know, and not kind of like they went like kind of proggy and heavy in the late 90s. But I was just like, yes, this is amazing. These guys get it, you know. Yeah. So there was something to it. Definitely. Did did you go to like ska matinees at CBGB's and other ska shows? Oh, I was just too young. By the time I started going to CB's regularly, I I was there like maybe once or twice in the late 80s for other shows. uh, But the, when I started going to matinees there was in like 1990 and they had stopped doing ska shows because people aren't going to believe this. The ska shows were more violent than the hardcore shows. So yeah. like they like had, even CBs stopped doing ska shows because they were too violent. And the, you know, the hardcore matinees there were f- like ridiculous. So um, that wasn't going on. And it wasn't until later they started doing little ska shows here and there. But I remember with Agent 99 playing there for the first time in like 94. And it was like they had forgotten about ska because they would put us on with the weirdest bands. You know, in the 90s, there would be like the kind of metal band with a DJ. And then there'd be, you know, the kind of like shoegazy band and some other kind of like grungy band. And they just throw you all on a bill together, you know. Well, that was always, to me, uh, the beauty and the curse of CBGBs because right. on, the, on, on the right night, if, if everything aligned, you could see three or four amazing bands who all played different types of music. Right. But, but it definitely was hard to get the crowds to mix because yes. it would just be like, oh, we're playing, you know, nine to ten. So, like, your people come in to watch you, hopefully. They leave. Then the next band's on. The people come in to watch them. And I guess that's the idea, but that's the strategy. You get like five different crowds instead of just one crowd all coming for all of the bands, you know. But it seems to me people hang out all night. They're going to drink all night and it creates a bigger party and a scene, um, which it seemed like in the 70s, you know, CBs had more of, you know. But I guess they didn't really know what was happening. Early 90s seemed like a crazy time when nobody really knew what was going to happen with music because all of this stuff was suddenly breaking through and getting played. And the alternative thing, you know, was there. And grunge was a thing, but, like, all this other stuff was happening and nobody really knew what to do with it. So they were just like... You know, they were just throwing spaghetti against the wall, I guess. Right. Now, when I spoke to Dania, she said that 
Agent 99 is what no doubt had been trying to sound like since its inception, and she was fairly certain that they copped a few licks from you guys here and there. But what's what's your take on that? Um, definitely when No Doubt got big, it was one of those, uh, I, I fucked up moments, you know, like I was just like, I, we didn't see the potential because when we were a band as a four piece, anyone that liked ska were like, yeah, you guys are okay, but you need horns. That's what everybody said. And then of course, rock people and punk people were like, okay, but why are you playing this Caribbean shit? You know, why aren't you just like a punk band, like, you know, or whatever rock band or something. So we felt like nobody was into what we were doing really. Although we had done some good shows and and had like a tiny little following, but, uh, you know, that was the moment like, Oh, other people saw this vision and we were kind of this looking at no doubt. We were like this much edgier New York, like lower East side version of no doubt you know, with black women singers, you know, we're like, oh man, did we like miss the boat on this one? Like we had no idea there was, that was a potential like thing that kids were going to latch onto, you know? Yeah. Maybe Dania did. I didn't have that vision um, at the time. She probably did. Obviously she got the band together. So, uh, you know, it was just one of those things you wish you could do over, but you can't. No, I think I I think you're right. You might have been a little bit ahead of the curve. And my experience with the New York scene at times was um, that it was a little bit rigid about sound, like you said. Well, you should have horns. Well, why? Why do we need to have horns? Right? I mean, yeah. It, it always seemed to me that if you were a little bit experimental in the New York scene of the '90s, early '90s, that uh, that didn't always go over well necessarily with the mm. larger the larger scene. Um, so I, I get that. I mean, maybe if Agent 99 had been in California, you might have had a very different experience than you did. Yeah, they they might have gotten it. I mean, you know, they got Sublime. They got that small trio sound. They understood it, the simple guitar, bass, drums thing. And, you know, I wasn't that good of a guitar player, so I wasn't really a lead player. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, like Alec – when Alec, we got him in the band after the first gig and he was really into Op Ivy at the time. And hearing that now, I didn't really get Op Ivy, but now I hear what they're doing. They're like, oh, they're this small guitar bass drums, kind of very edgy. You know, to me, they're like the next step from two-tone, you know, or like Fishbone is doing their thing and they're like a whole world of music in themselves. But like, they were like, oh, they're this edgy, punky thing and they're speaking directly to their audience like sublime did like the specials did you know so it's like i at the time was really into reggae but didn't really know how to play it so i was trying to play too smooth in like kind of an edgier band so i that's a big regret of mine that i didn't follow this thing and luckily alec kind of wrote some songs that kind of made me play like edgier and I think that's some of the best material. And Dania too, like had this like very, you know, kind of uh, aggressive up-tempo thing to her songs too.
Sure, sure. And I think what's really interesting is that you make a connection with the current Slackers drummer, Ara, right? During this yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, um, we played together. That's, you know, um, I got him in the band. We literally, I briefly went to NYU and we roomed across the hall from each other. And so that's how we became friends. And, and we jammed once, I think, there, just guitar and drums. And, and he was really good. He had gigged as a kid in L.A. and like the funk punk scene. And I, I, I never gigged at that point. Um, but, you know, somehow we stayed friends and we had another drummer. And we did a gig. Our first gig is Agent 99 under the name Courageous Cat. And our first gig was at ABC No Rio. And literally after the gig, like half the band quit. I think just me and Dania and Gail stayed in the band. And we played with No Commercial Value, which had Alec and Sturgeon, Scott Sturgeon, who went on to, to form Choking Victim and Leftover Crack. But Alec loved our band. He wanted to play more ska. And, and No Commercial Value played a little ska. They were doing like the ska punk and the, the crust crust punk ska thing hadn't quite happened but it was coalescing in that band and he loved what we were doing he's like yeah i want to play in a ska band he'd let me be in your band and we were like guess what <laughs> we need a bass player <laughs> and um Dania's brother played drums for us for a bit and then after the fifth show he needed to leave because his like acting career was taking off and so i was like you know i know this guy He's good and, you know, he knows what Sky's like. He really knew Fishbone and he knew the, like all the L.A. stuff and, you know, he's a really quick learner. I don't think he's playing drums, but let me just give him a call for the hell of it. And Aro was like, yeah, I'll do it. And that was, you know, that was a good yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I just I think it's really interesting that you guys sort of came up together in Agent 99 and now you have been playing together for some time in the Slackers. So, yeah. Um, there must be some chemistry there. Um, you you mentioned a little bit earlier before we sort of went off on the Agent 99 um, jag here about uh, playing with um, Django and Stubborn All-Stars. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit more about that? Because that sounds like it was probably c- quite an experience. Um, I think at that point, um, Stubborn All-Stars were sort of taking off, right? Was that when they were? Yeah, they, they had done a seven-inch um, they, they did this seven inch called old school. It was really like a, a project Django wanted to do. He had Skinner box going and he, before that in the eighties, he had the boilers. Um, Victor Axelrod was in that band and some other folks. And so like he, he was doing kind of, you know, modern American, like third wave ska, but he wanted to do like a more traditional Prince Buster Scatolites thing. And so they did this seven inch called old school. Jero was on it and they just had a little band. They just, you know, overdubbed everything in the studio and that got some interest. Um, so there was a label interested and so he was getting together a big band to make a record in the time in the nineties, once upon a time, labels had money that they would <laughs> give to bands yes, remember to make that? a record. 
There was a time before a band paid for their own record and then gave it to a record company. Um, but so he was getting this band together. And I guess uh, even though we weren't at all traditional in Agent 99, but I think I talked to Vic a couple times because Agent 99 and the Slackers played together a lot. And Vic knew I was into like oldies like Rocksteady and, you know, like Desmond Decker and Hopeton Lewis and the Upsetters. And he knew I listened to that stuff and I really wanted to play that stuff. So he recommended me to Django because there was not a lot of people into that sound then. There was not a lot of people trying to do that. Um, and it was great going in that room. And I remember I didn't really realize how like important of a thing it was to me at that point, like bands were, they were hobbies, you know, it's like you did it like, sure. If you had a gig or rehearsal, you made rehearsal, you called people if you couldn't do it. But I didn't really realize this, it was a big thing. I thought we were kind of just sort of loosely getting together and jamming and I missed the first rehearsal. And one of the best phone calls I ever got in my life was Django calling me up and bitching me out. <laughs> like, yo, man, this is serious. I'm doing this. I'm giving you a chance. I'll get somebody else. Like, you don't say you're coming to a rehearsal and not show up. And I was like, and that, you know, talk about lightning bolts. That was one of the best experiences in my life. So I was like, from then on, I was like, oh, this is serious. This is, people are really banking on this. And they're, you know, they're, they're taking time to have me in their band. So I, I, that was a really valuable phone call. Um, but it was great being in a room with Vic Rice and dudes I had seen from around playing with the Scofflaws, like opening for Desmond Decker and like these great players. And I knew Eddie and Dave Nelson from uh, the insteps. I forget who else was doing it. Uh, you know, some of the Skinner box guys. So it was a really good experience kind of all being in the same room and playing with those guys. And first time I'm reading songs off a piece of paper, you know, so it really felt like being in a band in like the old sense of the word, you know? Sure. Sure. And again, I would, I would assume it was sort of another step along uh, your education as a musician, right? Oh, absolutely. I learned so much being in that band. And, and I got to say, being a guitar player, most guitar players just hang around like other guitar players and bass players and drummers and maybe a keyboard player. But being in a band that was led by horn players who were like either schooled or readers and they were jazz guys and learning the language and learning like the old school tradition of being in like a backup show band was like invaluable as a player. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it, I can, what comes to mind is like the guys who were maybe backed up like James Brown. Right? Exactly. I mean, you just exactly. had to be JB's on it, right? or like the Count Basie orchestra or the MGs or like you were really, you were doing your thing. You know, it wasn't all about like everybody's a star and everybody gets a solo and everybody puts on a different outfit and looks flashy and does a thing. It's like, no, we're all, we all have to go, come together to make this sound. So the guys up front, the guy up front can do his thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, so how long did you um, play with or, or tour with um, Stubborn All-Stars? From 95, like I wasn't on the very first seven inch that kind of led to the whole thing. But really, I guess I joined the band. I thought it was, it maybe it was 94 that we first started rehearsing because I remember we rehearsed for a year and a half before we recorded the record and we, I think we recorded the record 95 because I went to Jamaica in June of 95. And I remember I brought a cassette of the rough mixes 
that I was playing for people down there. And they were like, wow, nobody plays this music anymore. So that was 95. We first played our, our first gig, I think, in 95 or 96 at the um, Continental. And Chris Dowd from Fishbone sat in with us, which to me like blew my mind that I was suddenly in this band where like the first band I ever heard ska from, like one of the guys is, is in the band with me, like standing next to me playing. Um, and then really the band, we played our final gig in Puerto Rico in uh, 2000. So I guess it was five years, you know, of, of gigging actually. It was a five-year thing. Wow. And and are there any shows that you did or any experiences you had with Stubborn All-Stars that particularly stand out other than standing next to Chris Dowd on stage? Um, a bunch, man. Uh, you know, like our first UK tour of like opening for Rancid and literally just getting like spit on every night, getting like pelted with coins and batteries um, we played our 50th show, I think it was our 50th show at the, the Barrowlands in Glasgow. And during our set, the, the ceiling in Rancid's dressing room collapsed and luckily nobody was hurt. Um, I remember a pipe bursting at Babyhead in, uh, Providence, Rhode Island over the, over Eddie, the drummer. So he was getting just showered with water. Um, man, it was like. In that band, like, yeah, there, there was so many crazy times. Uh, but, yeah, uh, too many. At the moment, I'm, like, blanking on sure, some of the no. great ones. But, uh, did, you, uh, did you go on – you guys played uh, Warped Tour? Is that right? Were you on something like that? Do I no, that um, Django and L and Dave Hilliard and Vic were all kind of auxiliary members of Rancid at ah, that time. Okay. And really Django is the link to between like the, the rancid, like Tim Armstrong and Hellcat records, even before Hellcat formed and the kind of the slackers, like he's really the link. I think um, they knew Django because he had played in Murphy's law and they knew Murphy's law because they were like a hardcore punk band. And so somehow there was that connection when, uh, the, our, the first Stubborn All-Stars record came out and I guess Rancid heard it. Um, there was already some connection. I forget what it was, but they had heard, they knew Django, they met him or something. But I remember we were on tour down south, my first ever real tour in 96, like spring of 96. And Django got some call. At, he had a cell phone on the road, which is a big deal then. And it was uh, Rancid's booking agent or somebody, or our person that had gotten a call from Mem. And like, I remember him telling whoever was driving, like, yo, pull over. And we were literally on the side of like 95 in like Georgia or the Carolinas or something. And we pull over on the side of the highway for him to take this call just so it was quiet in the van. And they were like, hey, do you want to, you know, this is like March. And they were like, hey, do you want to come to Europe with us in May and open for us? And we were like out of our minds, like, yo, this is going to be awesome. And you know, that was the, co the connection that we were opening for them somewhere in the UK. And I remember, uh, Tim, Tim and Lars or Tim came over and was like, Hey, we want some of you guys to sit in with us. And they wanted the horn guys and Vic. And that, that's really, that started that whole connection between the kind of East coast scene and rancid. 
Um, and from then on, then like the kind of Django slackers horn section became Rancid's horn section. Vic became their organ player. And that was really through the rest of the nineties. That was the kind of thing. And they took them on warp tour or Lollapalooza. No, it was Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza. Yeah. Yeah. Which was big. They played all these like big, huge shows with like major rock bands, you know, Ramones and Soundgarden and Metallica and shit. They were opening, you know, doing those gigs. So when your time with Stubborn All-Stars comes to an end, how do you connect with the Slackers and when do you sort of make your official debut with the band? Uh, I first sat in with them. We used to all, like Agent 99 and the Slackers had the same rehearsal space, which was, became Version City, the studio. But it was this little below the basement, below the sidewalk rehearsal space on 3rd Street and 1st Avenue in the East Village. So we would all rehearse together and like Dania was in the slackers and Vic subbed with us at some point. So we were kind of a one big family us. And then also kind of no commercial value. We play with a lot too. So we were like the three of us kind of clicked a lot, but, um, so I would sit in with them. We would all kind of hang out together. I would like jam with them on days, you know, where they, I would just sit in on extra guitar. So I remember first playing with the slackers in 94 at like Ludlow street cafe or something like that. And I played melodica, believe it or not. Um, but after stubborn all-stars like kind of faded out in 2000, it kind of became King Django band where we stripped it down to like a four piece or five piece. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And around the same time I was doing gigs, backing up Ari up from the slits who lived in Brooklyn and she was getting together and playing out old slits material and new stuff. So I did that for a couple of years and we did a few tours and, that was up until I remember we did a tour in 2004. It's like our fourth European tour. And it was just a total mess. We ended up missing several gigs. My bag got left at JFK. So I literally wore the same clothes for a week. Um, and I remember it was such a fiasco. And my friend was in the band and he was like doing the booking and, and tour managing and everything was a mess. And I was like, man, I love you. And if I'm going to stay friends with you, I have to leave this band. So I literally, we flew home, I quit the band, I went to sleep and like 10 in the morning, I got a call from Dave Hilliard the next morning going, Hey, we need a sub this weekend. Can you come to Boston with us? And literally I, you know, that was the start of me being in the slackers as a sub and that turned into permanent. So I was like unemployed for like 12 hours after leaving Ari Up's band and, you know, slid right into like about as smooth a transition as you can get and slid right into the slackers in 2004. That sounds like destiny to me. Uh, something, man. It, you know, I, I always suspected I might end up with that gig at some point. I, I knew most of the tunes. I remember when I subbed with them, I literally had to learn maybe six tunes or something. I knew almost all of them. So you, you, you replaced, uh, TJ Scam, right? Yeah. How how do you think your approach to playing guitar was different than his? Um, I I think I have a, a just playing like the type of guitar I play, like a Les Paul. I think it has an edgier sound. Um, he has that like Fender. He has a very like almost kind of Memphis kind of garage, almost kind of country old '60s sound, which really is the Slackers sound. So I think maybe I have like a fuller sound, but not necessarily more correct. Um, so that's something I'm kind of torn between all these years of like play the best I can do with my sound or try and emulate what TJ does. 
Um, Even now, after all these years, you still you still uh, try to approach your playing in that in that way. I every now and then, you know, when you play in a band, you you don't listen to the old records. You you know the tunes. You play them every night, and tunes over the years morph into this thing of just how they're played live. And then when you go back somewhere, you'll hear the original version off the record. Somebody will play it at a club, and you're like, "Oh my god, is that how the song goes?" Like we're playing it way too fast. Like I'm playing too much or I'm playing too little, you know, you'll actually, it's good to go back to the original record and check it. Um, so that's something I think about, about like, what would TJ play? You know, like it shouldn't be too aggressive or cutting or whatever. It should be kind of groovy and loose. Cause that was the, that's the slackers sound, you know? Right. And, and I did want to ask you sort of about your approach to playing rhythm guitar. And cause I, I know you are a huge fan of Rocksteady and I am as well. And, you know, people think to playing Rocksteady and particularly the rhythm guitar and it is easy. I don't think it is, but can you tell me how you approach that? Because you said earlier, you know, there's a meditative quality sometimes to playing these songs. Um, how do you, how do you approach that when some people will say, well, you're just sort of playing three or four chords through a whole song, but you have to work hard to make it sound that way. That's at least my impression as a bass player speaking to a guitar player, but what, what's your, what's your take on, you know, being a, an excellent rhythm guitar player in the slackers? Um, you know, Jamaican music in general, the guitar is kind of incidental. Um, it's really more percussive than it is a, you know, an instrument of, of moving the melody and, you know, moving the, the song melodically. Um, it's really the last thing you need to add. It's like, to me, the bass is much more important. Um, so, you know, and also too, like sloppy bands are never okay, but you know, you can kind of get away with being a sloppy punk band if you make up for it with energy, but man, a sloppy reggae band or a sloppy ska band is like literally getting stabbed in the ear with like an ice pick. I just can't stand it. And I've been, I've been that guy. So I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy. Um, to me, I really try to lock in with what Vic's playing you know, his skank really play exactly with him where the guitar and the keys are really making a third instrument. That's the the sum of those parts and really lock in on Ara's hi-hat because it's, yes, it is simple. It's very just on off. Um, you're only playing half the time, but you know, there's details to it. There's little stylistic things. Yes. It's very easy to pick up if you just need to play a, a reggae or ska skank, Anyone could do it, but to really get the nuance of it, you know, is important to learn the details to really make it stand out from what other people do. I really just try and play tight and play what the song calls for. Don't overplay. Like most guitarists, you know, we want to be loud and we want to be noticed. So there's a pedal, there's kind of flashy extra shit, there's extra strummy stuff, there's little lead fills, there's effects. And it's like, no, play less. Play yeah. less and play tight. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a great approach. The more is less um, philosophy of guitar. Um, I, I, you know, as as it relates to your guitar, I wanted to talk to you about some songs and and how you approach arrangements. And you know, as personally as someone who who plays and arranges ska and reggae versions of new wave songs for for the band I'm in, Rudy yes. George. I wanted to dig into with you a little bit about your idea of versioning songs. So I know I'm a big fan of the radio album, 
that, that the slackers. Oh, recorded. right on. Um, how did you pick the songs for that? Were they given to you or did you guys as a band decide which one? Some were, were given do? to us. Um, in fact, the, I don't know if the Madonna song, Like a Virgin, was given to us. John, I'm still standing. I think that was a requirement of the guy, um, Tom Gibbons, who, like from Wanevsky Records, who kind of backed that record and put it out. I think those were his requirements. And we were like, okay, like, who are we as a band? Can we just take a song and make it our own and not do it ironically? Like, oh, isn't it funny we're covering Elton John or Madonna? But can we just take the song as it is on paper and make it a slacker song? I love, I love doing covers. I don't like when bands cover a song just copying the original version. And I think there's way too much of that in the ska scene. People cover the ska classics. And, you yes, know, yes. That those songs are fun and they're fun to play. But I love when an artist takes it and really makes it their own, totally switches up the genre, totally switches up the production, or they distill the song down to some you know, almost free-based form of what it could be, or they notice some little tiny element. To me, like, I'll notice some weird little backing vocal part or some cool little thing that'll happen maybe in the fade-out, and I'm going to be like, no, that's going to be the hook. That's going to be the backing vocal response to what's happening. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think when you do what you guys did and what we try to do in Rude Boy George, it is about the little details. It is about trying to find something different. How do you, how do you make it your own um, and still retain sort of the essence of it? I mean, I, I think your version of, of Elton John's I'm Still St- Standing is amazing. Like, it sounds to me like it was recorded in Kingston in the early 70s. Yeah. Better than I ever been. 
I mean, that's the idea. That's yeah. You know. I think you were successful with that, and I also think that um, same thing with like a virgin. I think that um, Vic has turned that the least the lyrics on on their head, right? I mean, it's you you can kind yeah. of believe him as a man singing yeah. that song about a totally different experience of you know using the the yeah, and that's in our set almost every night. That's become like a standard. Yeah, and I can understand why. I mean, those two songs. I, it's I, a great I, song. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole album is great, but those two songs just jump out um, because I think of some of the, as you said, some of the attention to detail around the production um, is just is you know outstanding. Um, you also released the sound of '69 as as Crazy Baldhead, which is your sort of solo thing that you collaborate with lots of people. Yeah, but back in 2008, and and I went and re-listened to that recently, and I was struck by how good it is. And, and also I'd forgotten who some of the guests on, on that record are with you. For instance, Bucket of the Toasters is on yeah. that record. I completely forgot that. And he, he sings um, Victoria, Victoria by, the, by Kinks. the Kinks. And it actually suits him almost perfectly. The, the song that really was the idea, and honestly, the idea came from uh, friends of ours from the New York scene, Easy Star Records, who put out the very successful dub side of the moon in the early 2000s. And that kind of, you know, made me realize, like, oh, this is an idea, and they're doing kind of like modernish, late 70s, early 80s reggae style, like Roots Radix style reggae with classic rock material and I was like you know we're in the ska scene I love you know ska and rock steady and early reggae why don't I do a thing where I and I need, it needs a theme you know so I was like you know I love late 60s music why don't I take you know have pick a year and pick great songs from that year and make that theme but do it all in the kind of Jamaican music style from that year for the most part anyway um, but when I first had the idea I was like Victoria and I was like you know who would crush this tune I bet you Bucket would nail it and he did he was like oh yes I love this tune um, and he just ate it up he- yeah I was struck by that that song because it was so um, unexpected uh, again I I think you know I, I went to re-listen to it on Bandcamp and it, it doesn't necessarily list who the singers are and I was like oh my gosh that's a song that he should be playing in the toasters every single night, at least in, in, in my opinion. Um, the other song that jumped out at me, and they're all good, mind you, but was L Hussey uh, yes. singing A Boy Named Sue. Because um, L, and I don't know if this was intentional or or not, Jay, but he sounds a bit like Ian Dury uh, of the Blockheads. He loves Ian that. Dury. He first told me about Ian Dury. 
time when I was free And it didn't leave much for my mum and me Just this old guitar and empty bottle of booze Now I don't blame him cause he ran and hid But the meanest thing he ever did Was before he left, he went and named me Sue Well he must have thought this was quite a joke He got lots of laughs from lots of blokes It seemed I had to fight my whole life through Some bird would giggle and I'd get red Some geezer would laugh and I'd kick him in the head I tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue Um, and he just has that great, you know, he's from like Northeast London, Walthamstow. And so he just has like a great, you know, London accent. And I, that was another tune. I was like, oh, this is kind of a talking tune. And I, it would be cool to do it in, you know, Judge Dredd is like the inspiration for that. Like, what if we did Boy Named Sue, but if like Judge Dredd did it. Right. And he just took the ball and ran with it. And I remember he first, his first vocal takes, he was kind of singing the song. And I was like, no, 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 don't sing it. Like, just cockney talk it. Well, I knew that Codger was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had. And I knew that skull on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bald and grey and old. And I looked at him and my blood ran cold. And I said, watch up, my name is Sue. Now you're going to die. And so that's how we got the vocals together for that. And he nailed it. And he changed some of the words like, you know, we wouldn't say this. We would say this instead or this thing. And I'm like, yep, you know better than me, man. Just do it. <laughs> well, revisiting it was was a real treat. I mean, that's a really great record. Um, and I like it a lot because it, to me, it's like an homage to the New York City ska scene because most of your guests, you know, there's King Django's on there, Mike Trance. Right. And I mostly, yeah, I mostly meant with, went with who I knew personally that I could just ask and, and they'd be cool. Um, and like Alex Desaire, like I knew. And there's a few people that I missed that I wanted to get. And I, I would love to do a volume two of that. Like I would love to get Chris Murray. Um, I would love to get Greg Lee. Obviously now I didn't know Jesse Wagner at the time or maybe you just met him. Um, you know, but there's definitely other people I'd like to get on a record. Jeremy Pena, uh Kristen Forbes, uh, Ali Kulata from Stop the Presses. Uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of people I'd like to work with to do another one. Yeah, I, I hope you do do another one because uh, I, when when your version, other like rock songs properly, to me, I can listen to that stuff all day long. I mean, it's just, it's great. So I, I hope you do that. Um, you know, on the production side, you know, because I know that's a, a big part of what you do, um, you know, in addition to playing guitar in the Slackers and all the other projects you're in, who's your biggest influence? Uh, and, and do you have an approach to how you dub out a track? Is there, uh, you know, uh, a blueprint for you? Do you do you try to follow uh, producers that you um, look up to, or or do you take it on a song by song basis? Yes, I, I should have more of a method. I'm trying to get into that. I mean, I'm hugely influenced by like the originator, King Tubby, and like his main disciple, who is also an originator himself, scientist. Um, and so I, I, I do a lot of, I try and emulate a lot of the classic sounds and a lot of the classic moves that happen. But also, too, you have to like let the tune do its thing. Sometimes the tune is telling you what should happen. 
if there's a cool re- noise happening that you're like, oh, that should repeat, that should be an element, or there's something that you're like, I have to get rid of that. I have, sometimes a tune, people will send me these really busy or fast tunes. I have to kind of make space in the tune. Um, so you have to kind of work with the tune and figure out. Sometimes you just like you like it really stripped down in just like a bass and drum, just like a beat. And then sometimes you're like, oh, if I just put this little echo effect like on the drum or on the, you know, guiro or something, that's doing the that's doing the dub for me. You know, I could just leave that on and like that makes it sound cool in itself. Some tracks you have to do a lot of work. You have to be pulling stuff in and out and really go through it and pick out lyrics you like, lyrics you don't like, stuff that doesn't work, stuff that does work. But I, I try to emulate the originators, but you know, you can never redo that stuff. So you have to kind of do interesting stuff. I did a dub for this hardcore band in the UK called kicked in the teeth like a year ago or something like that. And, uh, or earlier this year and it's like a hardcore track. And I started doing it. I'm like, they were just like, Hey man, do whatever you want. So I remember I just took out the whole rhythm and recreated it with this old seventies drum machine I have and did this like kind of early analog electronic drum, you know, electronic, kind of almost dance hall, like art rock, you know, kraut rock dub of their tune. Even like the the verse is just the way the vocals landed. The verse ended up kind of being in three, and the chorus was in four, and that was totally accidental, but it totally worked. Right. So sometimes you just have to be like, okay, man, I have to just build this tune from scratch and yeah. just see what happens. Yeah, it's a bit like a puzzle, right? I mean, it's 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 starting from scratch, and then to me, that's like the beauty of the creative process, where you're like, okay, what what am I going to do with this? Yeah, I mean, sometimes literally it's, you know, you strip it down to the foundation. Ideally, you strip it down to the foundation and you just show off little bits of what's above the surface. Um, but sometimes you have to keep, you know, keep the tip and, and you know, or keep the top of the house and rebuild the foundation underneath it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I re-listened to a dub you did of the Clash track, London Calling, uh, today. How did you approach that? That was kind of interesting because I, it, it sounded like a lot of uh, the original was there, but I could also hear what w- what you were doing. You know, when you listen back to that, is there anything? You, are you happy with that of that mix? Yes, I, I um, you know, sonically, I think I've gotten better at mixing. I think I could make a, a 
cleaner sonic mix of what's there. I'm happy with what's played. And like Eddie Ocampo played drums. I think I had that drum beat sitting there. But um, really the only part of the original that's there is the vocals, which I found on like YouTube and just downloaded. Um, and literally uh, kept the tempo and really just rebuilt from scratch the whole rhythm underneath it. And, you know, I had a good drum beat from Eddie that was close to the tempo. So we kind of matched them and I kind of nipped and tucked the lyrics here and there and listened to the original to, to get the arrangement. And then, you know, just started learning the parts as I started filling it out. I was like, well, I got it this far. I guess I got to learn this guitar lick and I got to learn that part and I got to make some noises here and kind of emulate this kind of dubby section there and you know just that was one that I literally had to build you know from the top down you know those are tough those rebuilding rhythm underneath vocals is is a lot of work man I was going to assume that you had had gotten um the stem files or something like that um in order to yeah, it was just that. the vocals you could yeah. find on YouTube, isolated vocals, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you just download those and you're just basically like, I'm going to I'm gonna yeah, do listen to the original and get the, you know, what happens uh, just to get the arrangement down, you know? Uh, I, I, I was impressed that you took on a classic like that. I thought it was, I thought it was very cool. Yeah, I mostly did what I could find, you know, when I did the punk and dub thing, I just kept pulling them down and just took whatever isolated vocals I could find. There were a lot of tunes I wanted to do and just couldn't find the vocals for some. I like gave up on where I just, I'm, I was just like, man, I'm not good enough with the software or whatever to, to make this all fit together. Um, some I came back to, I guess, what was it? Uh, holiday in Cambodia. I kind of totally abandoned because I just couldn't make it work. And then I got better with the software. And so a couple years later I reapproached it and was able to, I think get a decent, reggae you know dub version of what's happening yeah yeah no i think it's great again i i like the reimagining um of creative process of, of 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 coming back to those songs and and it is cool to kind of hear them with a with a reggae um or rock steady vibe um mm. you, you mentioned drum machines a little earlier what's your approach to using drum machines in 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 your crazy bald head songwriting and have you ever considered, and I might've missed this, so forgive me, but have you ever, you know, used drum machines in any of your slackers, uh, material? Um, not too much. It's one of those things that like, I, I, I was sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's like, what is that? Um, uh, cognitive dissonance where it's like, I remember as a kid, like listening to like early rap and like, you know, Herbie Hancock, like synthesizer shit and liking it. But then like playing guitar, I was like a rock guy and a band guy. And so I was like, no, you can't use drum machines. You can't sample. You can't. And so at some point I was just like, why? And in the digital age, you know, just like use all the tools at your disposal. You know, if you have good material and you can make it better, that's really what counts. You know, as long as you're not using the technology to try and manufacture a song, you know, there's, you can't substitute the songwriting process, you know? Um, so yeah, like I, I have this, uh, this like Korg, this old seventies Korg drum machine I found in New Jersey for like a hundred bucks that I, it has great old sounds, but it only has a couple of beats. So like, I have to kind of squeeze everything into like a country two step or a, you know, weird bossa nova or something like that. But if you listen to like old, even on clash records, there's some drum machine, uh, definitely on some of the whalers stuff produced by Lee Perry, there's drum machine. So it's like, if you're creative and you build around it, 
you know, the good thing about those is they, they're consistent and they have really punchy full bass and, you know, everything really cracks, you know, so it, it's good like that. And they're in time. So it, your, your track is automatically like tight, you know, you just have to play to it. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm preparing an, an episode of the podcast about drum machines in, in reggae. And I've sort of gone back a bit down a, a rabbit hole, honestly, but you know, I've sort of circled back on this. Uh, the, the first use of a drum machine was by uh, Lee Scratch Perry on this tune called Chimchuri, um, where they used the first drum machine apparently that, that arrived in, in Jamaica. And um, it ended up for a while being sort of this, this popular rhythm um, that uh, Shinehead, you know, did a version of, um, of Michael Jackson tune. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just, I was Billy like, Jean. Exactly. You know, yeah. just like, it's, it's so catchy. Uh, and the creativity around, as you said, you know, you work with what you've got, you build a song yep. on what you've got. So, you know, there's that whole side of reggae. I know the slackers, you guys are, 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 are more um, natural in, in, in terms of that. But I think there's, you know, some of the beauty of uh, and creativity about Jamaican music is just the using the technology that's available at times. Yeah, and Vic's really creative. He'll a lot of times on a record, he'll want to take one track where he can just get weird, and he could just like, oh, it'll just be like him banging on a box and playing banjo or something, and that's the track, or like, you know, so it's not like out of bounds for that to happen. Where he's like, oh no, I want him to just make like the one weird track that'll have like some weird electronic drum, and I'll be singing the song over it and strumming a guitar or right. something, you know. Right. So he he's into that stuff. We we haven't done it much. I can't recall us actually using a drum machine, but um, he's not opposed to that stuff like on principle at all. He's all about like make it weird, make it different, and bring out the cool aspects of the performance and the song. Sure, and I, and I think that's what's what's kept the slackers um, uh, innovative and and interesting overall all these different years is is the fact that that's how you guys approach this that there doesn't seem to be a formula which i think is what a lot of your fans really appreciate about you guys um what did you learn from the shoulder injury you suffered a few years back um i I know you it was pretty rough because you weren't able to play guitar but you know if you if you look back on that experience um what what did you take away from it? Was there any wisdom that you gained from from not being able to play the guitar? Hopefully, um, yeah. I uh, you know my arm was paralyzed for a few months, and uh, definitely you know this is all you know. Don't waste any days, and every day is precious, and you know all of that stuff too. Obviously, which is easy to forget, and don't don't get angry over little detail. You know, there's two types of problems. You know, there's there's problems that can be fixed with like money or time. And then there's problems that can't. And so if something can be fixed with money or time or some combination of those, yeah, it's a problem, but it can be fixed. Um, and to just realize, like, let that stuff roll off, deal with it. Um, and hopefully you don't have the other kind of problems. Um, and you know, it taught me to like be less stubborn about how I play guitar because, you know, I suffered some like permanent nerve damage. So a lot of the ways I used to play of like leaving my amp a certain way and just kind of moving my volume or tone up and down, I couldn't really do because, you know, my third and fourth finger on my right hand are kind of messed up. So it taught me to just kind of throw all that out the window and kind of rethink how I played and how I set my guitar, how I set my amp. And it got me, you know, about a year and a half or so after recovery to kind of start taking lessons again 
with uh, Andy Basford, who's a great player, played Roots Radics and Toots and Scatolites and Dennis Brown. And he kind of noticed some bad fundamental habits I had and, and, you know, like broke that stuff down for me and, and got me on like a much better practice regimen that's really helped a lot. So a lot of that stuff is just like, don't, just because you've been doing something a certain way for a long time, don't assume it's the right way. Like do something different. It's okay. Unless it's wildly successful, it's not going to hurt to change. Sure. Sure. Good advice. And um, how, how is your guitar playing now in, in, in terms of, you know, ha- having to adapt? I think it's much better because I focus on it much more. I don't jump around on stage. Um, I do a much more rigid practice routine every day. I mean, at home every day, I, I, I had a very kind of haphazard practice routine before. Now it's much more rigid and it changes periodically every few months and I work in new things. And, uh, I really, you know, something I always knew, but something Andy Basford really got me uh, to become a habit of really play every note with intention, you know, don't take any note or chord for granted, um, and that's something that makes me like really enjoy playing. Even if I'm just standing there, just skanking along to like a tune, I really get into trying to make each one is, is exactly on time and, and sounding as good as possible. Um, that's really, I, I think I play much better now, but I, I have to work at it much more. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I know you just got back from being on the road and, uh, I'm interested in how you deal with the fatigue that comes with being on tour. Cause I know, you know, people come to see you at a show and it looks like, you know, you're having a great time up on stage. You guys are great, but there's all the other stuff around getting to that show and then getting to the next show. So is it hard to come off the road like you've just done? And, and, and if so, how do you get back to, you know, what I guess some of us would call a real life. I mean, you have a, 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 you have an unusual profession in that you don't have a nine to five, you don't go to work five days a week, but how do you, how do you come off the road and sort of get back to some semblance of sort of a, a regular schedule? Is that hard to do? Yeah, we actually have been on a very civilized kind of touring routine for a long time now for like 15 years when I, I remember when I first joined the band, we were still like, we, we had hotels, but we would kind of pack in as many people to a room as possible. So there would always be like one or two people sleeping on the floor. But for the past 15 years or so, it's like in the North America or South America, we'll like have hotels every night. So we'll like get a shower. We don't play super late every now and then there's a late gig, but we're not, you know, there's, there's always some party here or there on a tour. Um, but we're not like an all night raging party band. So we get a nice amount of sleep every night. I make a habit of like getting some sleep, if I'm, like I'm having some drinks before the show or during the show, but drink plenty of water. Um, keep a check on your like emotional state. If you're, uh, you know, in a bad mood or something or you're depressed, kind of don't spread it to other people and, and amplify it um, and just realize it's going to pass. Just focus on your job. And, you know, realize whatever you're doing on a given night, if it's a party and it's great, it's like you have to do this again tomorrow night and the next night and the next night. So you have to, uh, you know, you have to preserve yourself and you have to always realize what's most important. I definitely see bands we all have over the years that 
they're out raging and partying and see them on stage a lot of times and people can't remember their parts or they're playing like shit. And it's like, they're forgetting what got them on tour in the first place. You know, you have to always, the show comes first. Right. I, I think that's what people appreciate about the slackers. I mean, you know, I don't know if you'll like this uh, comparison or not, but in a lot of ways, you guys remind me of madness, not, not musically, but in the way that you've approached your career. Oh, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it as a compliment in that that's a band, for the most part, that is, has the same consistent members and um, have have been able to work together. I, I can't, you know, it can't always be easy to be with the same people for, for, for that long, unless you're really good friends, which I, it, sounds, it seems like you guys on the Slackers are. So, um, you know, I think your professionalism is is noted and that it's, it's an important part of your success. Um, you know... I want to ask you one final question before we wrap up. Sure. Because, uh, you know, this has been good. I've, I've enjoyed sort of getting like a, a whole retrospective of, of, you know, who you are and, and the different things you've done. But what would um, Jason Nugent of 2021 tell Jason Nugent of 1991, let's say, so th- 30 years ago, or even if it's 1994 when you first started playing? But what, what, what wisdom that you've, you've gained over the years would you share with a younger version of yourself? Practice. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> practice everything, you know, practice, obviously practice guitar, but I wish I had started trying to sing back then. I wish I had practiced songwriting more back then. Um, I would also, you know, I listen, but you know, it's like you really have to listen to other people and don't assume, you know, best. And you're not necessarily copying if you're being influenced by something, you know, and don't doubt that idea. Be smart about it. Don't, keep beating your head against the wall with a bad idea, but try something just because nobody else is doing it or you don't think anyone will like it doesn't mean that's not going to change in five years or 10 years, you know? Sure. Well, I think, I think, I know you just had a birthday. Um, and I know you're, you're on the cusp of, uh, of entering your fifties. And I'll say as someone who's been there for a little while now, um, I've found it to be an incredibly creative experience. So, um, I'm looking forward to what, the slackers can come up with as, as you guys all sort of enter your fifties, because I think it's an interesting age. It, it is an interesting time. The accumulated wisdom you've, you've gained over, over the previous years sort of start to add up. And so I'm excited to hear what you guys are going to cook up uh, over the next couple of years as, as you all enter your fifties. Um, thank you, Jay. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much, man. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Skaboom interviews on the Pantheon Podcast Network. My book is available. Skaboom is available from DeWolf Publishing. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com, as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care.